Um, I want to get in, before we get into Romans 12, we're going to start in verse number 9. I do kind of want to set it up with this idea, okay? So if you are like me, if you're a parent, and if you have raised kids, or maybe you have preteens or something like that, you got guys like middle school age, like these guys, and, and you're a parent, and you're like, look, okay, we're going to, they're too old for babysitters for sure, right? Amen to that, guys. And, and, but, but the parents are like, Man, I don't know if I'm going to leave them home alone. I mean, we got to run to Canton or we got to run to Cleveland. We'll be gone for several hours. And I don't know if I can leave my 12-year-old alone at home. And the kid's like, I got this, Mom. I got it. And so, you know, as a parent, you think, okay, they definitely know how to do stuff. They definitely, you know, but here's what I need to do. I need to give them like a to-do list. So while I'm gone, this is what parents do, in case you're wondering. We're giving you stuff to do to keep you busy that we're going to check up on when we get back. It's basically to keep you from getting in trouble if we don't give you something to do. Okay, I'll pull the curtain back a little bit and let you know the philosophy of the parent. Okay, so in, in God's economy, and we are his children, there are times where God just clears off a space and gives us a little to-do list. Okay, he, we're, we're starting to grow up, we're starting to learn some stuff, and we're starting to put things into practice. In Romans chapter 12, what we're dealing with is a situation where we're coming off a lot of doctrinal teaching. These are the things you should do and not do. Like a kid growing up, do this, don't do that. Now it's time to start putting it into practice. And, and the Lord gives us in this passage of Scripture kind of a to-do list. In fact, this idea of, of in various places through the Bible, there are several places in the New Testament, if you're familiar with it, where God just gives you this rapid-fire list of stuff that we ought to just be aware of, not with a lot of explanation, because it's fairly self-explanatory. Okay, so I want to give you an example of that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 15 to 22. This is an example of such a list. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good among, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. I mean, that's just kind of like, just, you know, just do that. Do that and you'll be okay. And there's other places in the New Testament where that shows up. And we're actually going to reference some of those frequently in the course of today's message as we come through Romans chapter 12. Okay, so Romans 12 in the setup turns the corner in the book of Romans, as we've been studying this for over a year now, to the beginning of the section that is ridiculously practical. All the theology has been set up. Now it's time to put it into practice. And it began with the first few verses talking about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. And thanks to Pastor Rich laying that out for us. And then last week, Tom came up here and shared with us about spiritual gifts. So as we present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord, then we begin to exercise the gifts that God gave us to serve the body and to reach out to other people. And today we're going to continue with this, again, this kind of to-do list of things. Okay, now you're going to start doing things. What is it exactly I should do? Well, we've got a long list. And you know, the list, like the other list I just read, it doesn't really require a lot of explanation. We speak English. I mean, we get this. You, you will understand the words. The issue is going to be, are you really doing it? And, and what God does is he clears off a space just to kind of remind us. Because, I don't know about you, but I think we don't always need to continually always learn new things. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of old things. Sometimes, look, even professional athletes have to review and practice the fundamentals, don't they? If they're going to be successful. And sometimes we have to do that. And that literally is what we have here. It is ridiculously practical. Again, as a matter of just setting our focus, I want to draw your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where Peter says this, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So Peter's at the end of his physical life and he talks to the believers around him and he says, look, I'm not going to teach you new things today. I'm going to stir you up and I'm going to remind you of things you already know. 
So I don't know where you're at today. We're a big crowd. There's certainly going to be plenty of people here who already know the things that we will cover in today's message. And so that applies to you. There may be people who are brand new. This may be your very first time and you're not familiar with church at all. But even, even for you, if that's you, these things are intuitive. These things are moral Okay, these things that you would just expect somebody in church to say, okay, this is going to be fairly obvious. Okay, so the goal for today is this, to stir you up, to remind you to do what you know to do. That's the goal. So, spoiler alert, that's where we're going, okay, that's what we're shooting for. So the title I've given it is just simply a snapshot of the Christian life, okay? Let's pray, we'll get into Romans, and we'll walk through this thing. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we just ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would show each of us and collectively all of us what exactly we need to put into practice in our lives. Again, I I would be shocked if there's very many people at all who would say, gosh, I never knew that before. Most of the things are intuitive. Most of the things we would expect. But my prayer today, Lord, is not that we would necessarily come away saying i learned something new i've never learned before but that you would touch our hearts to consider am i actually doing what you've already told me to do am i actually doing what i know i should be doing and maybe have neglected and that there would be a time at the end of this hour where we would all just come to jesus and be honest and say wow if there's something missing I need to get that right because, because I need to, because it pleases you, because you're worthy, because it's worth it, because you deserve it, because we should. I pray that you would break our hearts. I pray that you would remind us today. We desperately need you to do that. So please teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first point, uh, the first several verses that we're going to look at are going to come under this category, the character of the Christian life. And just follow with me. I'm going to read verses 9 to 13 of Romans chapter 12. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Okay, got us a good little list there. And the overarching theme of what we have is love. It starts off where it should start off. We come off the the gifts of the Spirit. We come off the sacrifice. We come off of all of our understanding of what God did for us in salvation. And it says, let love be without dissimulation. And, And in verse 10, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. There's no question about the fact that the overarching characteristic of the Christian life is love. I want to bring some references to your attention. Matthew 22, Jesus said this in verses 36 to 40. Man comes to him and says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So God Almighty in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ on planet earth is asked a question, which is the greatest commandment coming off the era of the Old Testament legal system of Moses and all the detailed intricate things that they had to fulfill in this body of truth called the law. And Jesus, I love it. He just bottom lines the whole thing into one simple package and he's like, love God and love your neighbor. And if you just do that, it will cover all the rest of the stuff. If our lives, brothers and sisters, are not over, overwhelmingly characterized and driven by and motivated by our love, first and foremost for God, and therefore for one another, then whatever it is we're doing, although they can be good things, it won't last, it won't sustain, it won't be genuine. And it's not really effective at the end of the day. Romans chapter 13 and verse number 10, looking ahead a little bit in the same theme, it says this, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Just like Jesus said. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 5 says it this way, Now the end of the commandment is charity 
out of a pure heart. The end of the commandment, the fulfillment of the commandment, the commandment, the law, and all of the truth that would have come out of the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, arguably the greatest chapter in all the Bible on the subject of love, or as your King James Bible has it, charity. It starts off, it says in verse number 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy, we just came off of Romans talking about spiritual gifts, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. That's not how we really live in this world, is it? If guys are super skillful, super talented, if they have abilities to do things that are extraordinary, we watch them on television, we pay money to watch them, we cheer them on, we do things, and then we, turn, we find out, like a lot of our sports heroes, that they're really jerks in real life. They're, they're without morality, they're evil, they do terrible things in their personal life, and yet still somehow we applaud. God's economy is entirely different. He says, look, you can have all the skill in the world, you can have all the abilities in the world, you can have all the faith. He even uses spiritual terms and prophecy. But if you're not motivated by love, as far as I'm concerned, God would say, that's a big goose egg. That's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. I mean, love has to be the thing that drives every bit of it. In fact, at the end of that chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, the last verse says this, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. So certainly our character as Christians should be described primarily by love, wouldn't you say? Okay, so there's a lot of things. Now we're going to break this down because now the verses just go, okay? And so I've given you points to break all of these down and they're just, you know, you got like 18 blanks to fill in or whatever in your notes. The first one is, that's going to sound funny, love good. Now, it, notice, look, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a Nazi about words. It's not love well. It doesn't mean do a good job loving folks. Love the good. Love things that are good. That's what I'm getting at. Love good, okay? In other words, it starts out and it says, let love be without dissimulation. Great big word, literally just means hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, let your love be sincere. Let your love be genuine. Let your love be not fake, not feigned. What exactly does that look like? Well, it tells you what it looks like. Abhor that which is evil, in other words, hate the evil, cleave to that which is good. So love the good and hate the evil. Love the good and hate the evil. Now we've got to talk about this for just a second because you have to understand, look, this sentence I'm going to say is going to be very clear. Everybody would agree. Good and evil are polar opposites, obviously. It's the loving and the hating thing that sometimes gets us a little twisted. God says love the good, and hate the evil. Those two statements are virtually the same. If you truly love the good, you will by default, by definition, hate the evil. And I say that because not everybody lands there. Because it is a pervasive value that comes through our social society that we live in today. It's, it's not accurate. It's not biblical. That, that the highest virtue is tolerance. The highest virtue is now acceptance of all and everyone and everything and everything they do and every way that they think, regardless of how perverted it might be in, front, in, the, in the light of the, of the Word of God. And God says, love the good, cleave to that which is good, cling to that, and abhor or hate or despise the things that are evil. In other words, if you try and profess that you love everyone and everything, good, evil, or otherwise, the truth of the matter is you don't really love anyone. You don't really love anything. Because if you genuinely love one thing, by default, you will hate the polar opposite of it. Does that make sense? Loving one requires hatred of the other. You're thinking, well, I didn't expect to hear that at church today. Well, God is trying to teach us something, and I want you to think through this. Okay, loving the light requires that you hate the darkness. Loving to be clean requires that you hate filth. Loving purity requires that you hate defilement. Loving God 
requires that you hate sin. And loving truth requires that you hate error. Do you understand that? That's an important thing. Listen, true love is never tolerance of everyone and everything, especially if it's sinful. I am not advocating that we go out and beat people over the head with things. I'm not advocating being unkind. I am saying that within yourself, you just cannot stand the presence of sin and error and defilement and filth and darkness. You are all about God and what is good and truthful and clean and pure. People stand up and on occasion speak against sin. They speak speak against error, frequently people who are in my position. And then we frequently get accused of, well, that's not very loving. I mean, where is the sweet spirit of Jesus in all of that? And, and we get a lot of attacks on that level. That's not very loving. You're, you're speaking against me or somebody or something. And I would argue, well, of course it's loving. I just love truth. I hate error. I love God. I hate sin. I'm not personalizing it. Why would you? I'm standing for what I truly, truly love. It's loving truth. It's loving righteousness. And God tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 9 that anything short of that is hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Let love be without hypocrisy. Hate the evil and cling to that which is good. That's true love. That's the love that characterizes a true born-again Christian. Our next point. Verse number 10, be kind. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Kindly affectioned communicates to us an emotional connection. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And you say, okay, well, that makes sense. We should be kind. We should be affectionate. We should have brotherly love, meaning brotherly love means within the family of God, among the brothers and sisters that make up the family of faith. And you say, okay, well, how exactly should I do that? Well, he explains how we should do that. It says, in honor, preferring one another. To prefer one another means, this is real deep. Are you all ready? Got your pens ready? You give preference to somebody else over yourself. Now, if you're a teenager, it it goes against your culture, I know, because you all are growing at a point in life where you're striving to determine exactly who you are, and you're fighting for some individualism, and actually, it's a beautiful thing. I, I mean that. But in your strive for that individualism, what the tendency is in your flesh is that you will discount everybody else to prove how cool you are. And that kind of runs counter to the Bible. Do you see that? By the way, you don't need to be a teenager to struggle with that, right? But it does particularly hit that stage of life, doesn't it? Okay, so it's giving preference to somebody else. Philippians in chapter 2 and verse number 3 says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. I mean, let's be honest, y'all. I mean, how often are we really doing that? I mean, come on. I mean, I can value you a lot. But the truth of the matter is, when I go home, I'm a lot more worried about me than you. Right? We, we are made that way. It is so natural for us that we will walk out of here today and we will excuse it and say, well, of course, well, that's just the way we are. God knows. Well, sure he knows. And that's why he wrote, <laughs> uh, I, don't do that. Listen, if we all as a body behave that way, I would not have to ever worry about giving away all of my rights and preferences to you because you would be working equally as hard to give them back to me. You know what I mean? You would be so preferring me that preferring you would be a breeze, right? But when the little seed of rebellion gets in and everybody's like, well, you know, thank you for the preference. I'm going to run over here and have a double dose and you don't get any. 
or whatever. Well, then we're like, well, I want mine back, you know, and, and then you just, the whole thing goes crazy. God says, no, the character of a Christian motivated by love, love God, love that which is good, love your brothers, preferring them, preferring them. You know what would be a great example of that? Don't turn there, but those of you who have read through the Bible, you're you're familiar with the story of of Abraham and his nephew Lot. And they made some mistakes. They went down into Egypt. When they were down in Egypt, man, they cashed in. They got so much wealth, and they ended up coming back into Canaan, and they got in that area, and they're like, look, Abram and all his servants and all of his cattle and all of his wealth were so many, and Lot and all of his servants and all of his cattle were so many that they said, man, the land is not big enough to hold all of us. And Abram, without question, is the elder statesman, right? Lot's his nephew kind of tagging along and got in on a ride. And Abram says to Lot, all right, Lot, look, there's not enough room out here for all of us. We've got too many cattle. There ain't enough grass in this area. You go find you. He said, look, you pick. You pick where you want to go. And wherever you don't pick, that's where I'll go. That's a great example of preferring the other over yourself. Did Abram have to do that? No, he didn't have to do that. But that was a wonderful God-driven motivation for him to say to Lot. And then Lot ended up picking his area near the town Sodom. Didn't work out so good for Lot. But Abram gave him the ability to choose, and that's where he chose, which led to some other bad choices. The third point, C, work hard. Verse number 11. Not slothful in business. I, I, I can't remember where. I'm flipping through the Facebook stuff. Kind of irritating. All the little clips that are on there now. It just bugs me. But I'm flipping. There was a sloth just this week. It was interesting. Like crawling across a road. You ever seen that? that I, mean, I mean, you're talking like it takes forever for him to stretch his hand out. You know what I mean? The sloth. Okay, very descriptive when it uses the word slothful. Obviously, don't be lazy. Don't be so lazy in the work that you have to do. Work hard. That's what he's trying to say. If you go into the Proverbs, that that term slothful is used over and over again about working hard and being diligent. In fact, diligent is the contrasted characteristic with slothful. there's There's two things that are contrasted with being slothful in the Proverbs. One is to be diligent. Don't be slothful, but be diligent. And another place it says, don't be slothful, but be righteous. That's very interesting. Be righteous, it says. Okay, so Proverbs 26, I like this one. I gave you this one verse. Verse 14. It's very descriptive. As the door turneth upon his hinges, so does the slothful upon his bed. How many of you felt like that this morning with the hour we lost? Okay, you know, the alarm's about to go off. Ethan, appreciate it, buddy. Good job. Okay, so you're late and you're like, you know, you roll over again. I get it. That's, if your life is characterized by that, okay, you probably, you probably need to change. There's probably got a problem there. Don't be slothful in your business, it says, but to be fervent in spirit. I do want you to notice that the word spirit has a small s. It's not the Holy Spirit. This is your human spirit. All he's trying to communicate is don't be lazy, but be zealous and enthusiastic. Okay? Listen. A lot of you are hard-working, red-blooded Americans, okay, heartland people. I, I love it, okay? And what happens is, is we are very accustomed to working hard and not being lazy and being excited about what we do. And what we do is, is we apply those principles of not being lazy and being energetic to our secular careers. We apply them to our fitness routines, We apply them to our kids. We apply them to our kids' sports activities. We apply them to our vacation planning. We apply them to our recreation. We apply them to a lot of things. That's great. That's fine. That's awesome. But what God wants us to apply it to is the ministry. (laughs) Because the verse goes on and it says, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. So with that same level of zeal and enthusiasm and energy and working hard and not being lazy and going for it, that should characterize your ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's what he wants us to do. 
One of my all-time favorite verses of all the scripture I'm giving to you now because I like quoting it whenever I get the chance. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always continue to give and to go and to do. Why? Because your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. Abound in the work of the Lord. Go for it. Work hard. Make it a serious priority. That's the character of a real Christian. D, keep focused. The beginning of verse number 12. Rejoice in, rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. Okay, so according to the scriptures, our authority, right? The ultimate hope for the Christian is found in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13. You have it right there. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is our ultimate hope as Christian people? Well, it's going to see Jesus at the end, right? It's the rapture of the church. It's ultimately living forever with him. If you have personally experienced, or if somebody you know has recently experienced a loss in their family, somebody that you have loved has passed away physically, and if that person is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, going to a Christian funeral is the greatest testimony of this point that you could ever have. Because you can rejoice in hope. The hope is as there is an eternity and it is forever in heaven with the Lord, not in the alternative. And so the contrast is those who don't know the Lord, it's the most tragic, depressing event that could ever take place. They slip off into eternity not having received the one and only gift that really matters, eternal life. We rejoice in the hope of eternal life. Look, we can argue about doctrine until that day all you want, but the fact that we know the Lord and can rejoice in that eternity is the key, right? Here's the question. Do you really rejoice in that day? I mean, let's go back to the analogy. Let's go back to the, the, the middle schooler who's home alone for the first time. And the parents give them a thing, list to do. Okay, so now you guys got your list of things to do. You're going to clean stuff, and you're going to take care of the dog, and you're going to whatever you're going to do. Okay. And so, you know, mom and dad say, we'll be back in four hours. And for the first three hours and 45 minutes, you know, it's all over the Xbox, right? And then you're like, holy cow, they're going to be home. Okay, at that instant, if that happened, that would never be you guys, but people you know. Okay, so at that instant... You're not like rejoicing in the imminent return of dad. You're not rejoicing in that. You're like, oh man, give me another hour, you know. And that's the picture of the Christian who's not walking with the Lord. In other words, you're going to rejoice in the hope of the rapture if you're, if you're living the snapshot of the Christian life. But if you're in rebellion and the Lord calls you today, you know, that's going to be, I mean, you know, I'm not saying you're lost. I'm just saying that's going to be a little sticky day, you know. It's going to be a little rough. Well, if you do have that joy in your heart, and you can't wait to see Jesus, I can't wait to see Jesus. Look, I got plans for the next five years and in my mind, but if the Lord comes back tonight and cuts them short, I'm cool with that. <laughs> How about you, right? Okay, well, if you have that attitude, then, then that will help you to be enthusiastic. It'll help you to be zealous, right? So verse number 14, the next verse of Titus 2 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, notice zealous of good works. So all this working hard with enthusiasm comes natural if you're looking forward to Jesus coming, right? Okay, but there's a flip side to that coin because it says patient in tribulations. Because life is messy. Life is not always wonderful. Life is not always joy. <laughs> Life is hard sometimes. There are tribulations. Life has trouble, right? And so we need to be able to endure through the tough times. Difficulties and circumstances in your life that hit us all at different levels should not derail you from your continual walk with the Lord. That's what he's trying to communicate. In fact, nothing, and I mean exactly nothing, should ever qualify to be a bad enough trial in your life that would cause you to quit serving Jesus. 
Somebody can say amen. That was good. Listen, nothing should be bad enough that should cause you to quit serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you from experience as a pastor, the things that cause people to walk away and quit and never come back typically are not, I lost my job or my house burned down or some, some physical affrontation. It's not that. What typically is is, you know, Sister Sally offended me and said something I didn't like. And I ain't going back to that building, so help me God. And they make some stupid vow. And as though, as though they have to keep their word for eternity, they'll never get right with God and they'll never get right with their brothers and sisters. And nine times out of ten, when people quit serving Jesus, they're mad at another human being. And then they just transfer that anger onto God. A ton of y'all nodding your heads because it's true. You know it's true. And it's ridiculous. It's sad. It's foolish. There's no reason why that should happen. We should be able to work our way through. That is not a Christian characteristic, right? Okay, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, ties a bow on the whole thing. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So that's a really important thing. Okay, let's go on to the next one. E, always pray. Always pray. Again, very intuitive, continuing, instant in prayer. We read it earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So God wants you to pray always. He wants you to pray about everything, and he wants you to pray that little word, instant at every moment. The story in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes at the time when they're in, they're in captivity and, the, and Nehemiah gets word that his city, his hometown Jerusalem, the walls in the city are torn down and he's brokenhearted and he, he wants to go and try and help. And, but he's a, he works for the king and he's got to get permission and he goes into the king and and basically, he goes before the king with the idea that, wow, I, I, I need to try and do something, but I don't know how am I... In other words, how am I going to get time off from my job so I can go do this? And in those days, you don't just march into the king's office, but he had, you know, he kind of had an inroad there. He was the cupbearer. He, he had personal contact with the king, and he goes in, and basically the story goes like this. The king says to him, he says, what do you want? And right then and there, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then immediately after, he gave the answer of what he was looking for. In other words, that's an instant prayer. That's, that's a prayer where, wow, life just happens. Somebody asks you something. You ever been in that situation? And it's kind of like, oh, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? I mean, continue instant in prayer. That's the idea. You can call on God always about everything, the dumb little things, the huge things. And at every single moment, the question is, do you? Do you do that? Or do you do like a lot of us do and work as hard as you can to take care of it all yourself and when you're out of options, you're like, Ugh, I better ask God. <laughs> Lord, please help me because I've done everything I can do. Well, maybe we should have just started there. What if we just started there? Wouldn't it be easier? That's what he says. That's how we should live our lives. F, help others. Distributing to the necessity of the saints. Now, I've got to point this out to you because I think it's pretty cool. Okay, this old King James Bible that we read uses the word distributing. Distributing. A lot of the newer versions, one of the most popular ones is the ESV or the New American Standard. They'll use the word contributing to the necessity of the saints. Okay, now that's not wrong, but distributing is better. I mean, it's one thing. It's okay. To, it's, in fact, it's great. Give. Contribute. That's awesome. But to actually take the gift and distribute it to the people who need it, that's better, is it not? It, it's, a better, it's more descriptive. It's more encompassing. It's a really good word, okay? How does that play out? Well, notice, Paul has the perfect example from his life. We'll just look at it. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, 
Even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, like we are here today, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So in other words, it is a biblical mandate that we meet on the first day of the week and make a collection regularly. Later on, we'll do that. We do that every week. Thank you to all of you who contribute to that. This is something that we should do concerning the collection for the saints. The first day of the week, every week, so you don't necessarily have to have some special offering just for when Paul comes to help other people out. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. This actually plays itself out in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, where Paul does that very thing. But now I go, Paul says, unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia which is, and Achaia, which is where the church in Corinth is located, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So some gave the offerings regularly. Paul showed up, said, thank you. I will carry it and distribute it to the needs of the saints. That literally is what is going on. So this application, this principle is to be applied to you as an individual Christian. It is to be applied to us as a church. This is not a Bible verse defense for a governmental welfare system, for example. This is what Christian people do. We take care of each other. That's what we do. Notice it says to the necessity of the saints, not the necessity of the world. Please understand the difference. Uh, you know, everybody's different, and certainly I am not accused of certain, you know, gifts of mercy or giving. Uh, you know, I may be accused of other things. Uh, I've lived 14 years of my life in a very poor country where every other street corner had some street beggar on it. I am not the kind of person who frequently gives to street begging people. Um, I have on occasion, but I generally do not. I'm not saying that you should not. I am telling you that the Bible mandates that we take care of the family of God. It does not mandate that you take care of the world and the devil's children, spiritually speaking. Now, if you want to and you feel like God would lead you, that's fine. You understand what I'm saying. I'm just telling you, this is what the thing says. Now, it also says, give to the necessity of the saints. Not every want and whim and desire, right? There are times when people are truly needy. There are times when people are just big whiners. And we need to be able to discern. We are to help needy Christians. That's what we are to do, okay? Given to hospitality. Uh, the word hospitality starts out with the word hospital, okay? Take people in and care for them. That's what it means. And we should be given to that. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 8. The, one of the qualifications for an elder but a lover of hospitality. I love taking people in and caring for them. That doesn't mean my house has constantly got you know, homeless people in it or whatever. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you do that. I'm just saying being hospitable should be a characteristic of your life. 1 Peter 4.9 Use hospitality one to another without grudging. And Hebrews 13 again, only verse number 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares really cool idea but you look you never know if god isn't testing you and somebody needs some help and whether you help them or not it's an angel in disguise i don't know i don't know maybe obviously there's some situations where that's the case he says some have done it some have entertained taken people in right they didn't even know they were angels so what does an angel look like a little naked baby with wings flying no they look like humans All right, enough of that. Number two, the unity of the Christian life, verses 14 to 16. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. We are talking about a life characterized by togetherness. We are talking about a life characterized by unity. And the first thing I want to point out in verse 14 is don't curse. How about that? Now, when I say don't curse, this is much more than just avoiding foul language. I mean, God help you if you can't get past that yet. 
I mean, you really should be past the point where just using nasty, foul language is a part of your vocabulary. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now listen, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to say it understanding that somebody might walk out of here and accuse me of stuff and be mean. I hope you won't. I hope you'll love me enough. I hope you'll apply the things we've already seen in the first five or six verses when you hear what I'm about to say, okay? But there is a word that we use in our English language, and it is a word that is a curse. When people damn something, they are cursing that thing. I'm not, saying it, I'm not using it in the word like it's a cuss word. I'm saying that when, when a person declares that something, excuse me, be damned, okay, they are placing, they are pronouncing a curse on it. What if God really answered all of the prayers of all of the people that are out pronouncing curses day after day after minute after minute after? No wonder our world's all messed up. I mean, it's just being cursed like crazy. And we shouldn't do that. Paul, we're not going to look at these references. In Acts 23, Paul was being, ju- excuse me, being judged. And, you know, while he was being judged, they slapped him. Paul failed. He didn't, he didn't do it. He wasn't able to do what it says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Paul said, the Lord smite thee, thou whited wall. I mean, Paul just, he, you know, he kind of gave it back to him. You know what I mean? He didn't handle it. it this is hard. Uh, Jesus did. You know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, Stephen did when he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen did it. Jesus did it. You can do it too. You can. I got an example for you, and I call out the life of a man named William Tyndale. Some of you have heard of William Tyndale. He was a, a, an English scholar back in the 16th century. William Tyndale was one of the guys who was instrumental in the translation of the Bible. He was ultimately burned at the stake at 1536, in 1536 as, as, a, as a heretic. In his dying breath, William Tyndale, he's being persecuted and tortured to death, cries out, and his last quote, it's famous, he says, he prays to God that God would open the eyes of the King of England. And two years later, King Henry VIII of England approves the translation of the Bible in the English language that is called the Great Bible, which ultimately then works its way down to our English King James Bible. Because William Tyndale, while being persecuted for righteousness' sake, did not curse, but rather blessed. And he cried out for God to do something amazing. And the work that you have in your hand in an English King James Bible is, is conservatively 80% the work of William Tyndale. Phenomenal, phenomenal scholar and, and person from church history. Don't curse. The second point, B, share life. 15 and 16. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, weep with them that do weep, and be of the same mind one with another. Okay, so rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep can only occur if you are involved in their life. How can you rejoice with someone if you're disconnected? How can you weep with someone if you are disconnected? You have to be involved in their life. Going back to Hebrews 13, which has a lot of these parallel references, verse number 3, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourself also in the body. It says be of the same mind one toward another. That means to the best of your ability, try to relate to them. You know, we say, put yourself in their shoes. Try and feel what they feel. Try and experience what they experience, even if you haven't personally experienced it. Care enough to try and to be there. Listen, this idea of really being able to do that, this requires that you actually have some experience in your life and some difficulties. Now, we all have some experience in difficulties, but let's say we have a brother or sister who's really suffering persecution for righteousness' sake. You can't really share that experience unless you have suffered persecution for righteousness' sake. You understand what I'm saying? And some people are so afraid to suffer that they never get off of their blessed assurance 
and get out and try to do anything for the Lord. And because they never get out and try, their life is clean and pretty, but nothing ever gets done. And they are incapable of really applying this principle because they have no life experience concerning ministry anyway. And we need to do that. Philippians 2 and verse 2 says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Why don't you consider applying that to missions and missionaries? I, I speak not as just because I, 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 I am one who was once serving in that capacity, but because I think it's what God would want. Listen, we are blessed and fortunate enough to be able to partner with a lot of wonderful men and women who truly sacrifice and put their life out there in a way that most of us can only admire. And, and although we may not truly be able to relate on a one-to-one basis with some of the suffering they go through, we, we can truly care enough about them to hurt when they hurt and to rejoice when they rejoice and to be connected with them at more of a, a level than just being aware that they exist or walking into our coffee shop and seeing the names of the missionaries we support, literally praying for them. We have a, a quarterly handout with prayer requests for our missionaries. I hope you've got one. If you haven't, we have them in a little display in the coffee shop. You can pick one up. Every day it has a different missionary's name. You can know a little bit about them. You can pray for them. You can understand a little bit about them. You can write to them. You can communicate with a lot of them anyway. You can understand about their life and their difficulty. And, and if you'll do that, I mean, it really, it really makes a difference. That's a good way to consider doing that. Okay, C, the last part of verse 16, stay humble. It says, mind not high things. Mind not high things. Okay, so to be high-minded, the Bible talks about that. To be high-minded is to be proud, is to be haughty, it's to be arrogant. Okay, mind not high things. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And it goes on and it lists all the different characteristics of what these perilous times are going to look like. And in verse number 4 it says that men will be traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. So what we understand is that, that in these last days in which we now live, it is a natural characteristic of our society that people will tend to be high-minded, haughty, arrogant, proud. Ever experienced that? That's what God says, don't do that. Don't be like them. It's particularly difficult for us as North Americans. Why? 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 7. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. If you are here and lost your job, you are still, by virtue of your citizenship in this great country, one of the world's richest individuals. As a North American, you are rich in this world. Now, in our community, you may not be the richest guy. In American standards, according to large city populations, you may not be the richest guy. But compared to a lot of the people in the third world, oh my goodness, you have so much abundance, it is ridiculous. This verse applies to us. We particularly, with all the excesses that we have available to us, need to be careful not to be high-minded, but rather to condescend to men of low estate. We use the word condescend sometimes thinking as a negative connotation, but literally it just means to bring yourself down to the level of others. Men of low estate means nothing more than that they are just a little worse off than you. Anybody anywhere that may not have all the advantages that you have. And what he's saying is don't think you're better than them because you're not. <laughs> because you're not. Jude 16, people that make this mistake, it's written of them. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. That's sin, by the way. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. That's people who enjoy their high position and look down their nose at others. James chapter 2 addresses it, first five verses. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, 
And ye have respect unto him that weareth the gay clothing, different meaning, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say unto the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes, he has. And so you need to be careful how you treat people because the truth of the matter is you never really know who you're talking to. You never really know their whole story. Which is why the verse goes on then in 16 and says, be not wise in your own conceits. Because things like education, position, wealth, they can cause you to be high-minded and conceited about what you have. That, that is an error of what the Bible says. That's an error of the fool. Uh, Proverbs 26 and verse number 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And 1 Corinthians 10, 12. I love this verse. It's a great reminder. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Don't be wise in your own conceits. Don't think that you're something that you're not. Don't look down your nose at anybody. Don't think that because somebody has had less advantage that they're any different than you condescend to men of low estate be not wise in your own conceits if you behave that way by the way that is how jesus behaves that is a christian way to behave and that is a demonstration of unity and loving care and and accepting and and welcoming everybody into the family together we are all in this together okay the last point i want to point out is the power of the Christian life. This won't take long. Verses 17 to 21. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So, okay, how often do you hear people say, or how often have you said, well, he did it to me first. As though that then justifies your ability to in turn return some evil for evil. Well, listen, we've all done it. We've all done it. But biblically speaking, it's not acceptable. Listen, the world may say that's justifiable, but you need to understand something. In Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, you have a power and a strength available to you that this world does not have available to them. You have the ability to turn the other cheek that they do not have the ability. You have the strength of character and, and, and of the Spirit of God in you that allows you to live at a level so much higher that will then be able to be used for his glory. And that's what God desires of us. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Paul said in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted, above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You can handle it. You can survive it. You can work through it. You have the power and the strength to recompense to no man evil for evil. When people treat you bad, you don't owe them similar bad treatment. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. So the way we're going to play that out first is to live honestly. Live honestly. Verse 17, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Live publicly as you live privately. Your life is on display. Romans 14, 7, for none of us liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. Your life is not in a cocoon. 1 Peter 2, 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works which they shall behold. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Live honestly. Secondly, live peaceably. Verse number 18. If it be possible, 
as much as lieth in you. God gives you an out here. Okay? He has a condition. Because the truth of the matter is, to live peaceably with another is not 100% dependent upon you. But he says, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. If the other guy just won't have it, okay, there's nothing you can do. But don't let it be your fault that you can't live peaceably with other people. It does seem impossible with some people. But as far as it depends upon you, you should be able to do it. In other words, you should seek peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This verse was used during our worship, John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, there is a power available to you to live peaceably, even in the midst of a situation that doesn't seem like you can. You live your life at a different level. Paul, when he often writes letters, he writes the letters and he begins with this greeting, grace and peace. Because that is the idea. Listen, here's what you need to do, Christian. You need to value peace over being right. I didn't put that in your notes, but it wouldn't be a bad idea if you did. Value peace over being right. That's a good question for people. Do you want to be right or do you want to get along? They don't always go together. Take the fall sometimes if necessary. It's okay. Leave it with the Lord. He can handle it. Lastly, live purposefully. Verses 19 to 21, it says, Avenge not yourselves. Let God do that. Okay, so live your life with a higher purpose. Right? I mean, God's got your back. Let him work it out. That's what he wants, right? I mean, you don't know. He might want you to suffer for just a little while to teach you some stuff. And by the way, while you are suffering for a little while and handling it well, God may just want the people around you that you work with, that you go to school with, that you hang out with, God may want them to see how well you handle it as a testimony unto them. Live with a higher purpose. Don't feel like you have to finish all your accounts right here and now in this life. There is another life. And God will take care of those things. That's what he's trying to communicate here. So he says, therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That goes counterintuitive to what we think. You need God's strength to be able to pull that off. But if you do... You demonstrate the life of Christ in a way that otherwise could not be demonstrated. And maybe it can be used to lead them to repentance. But if it doesn't lead them to repentance, because it is a testimony of the life of Christ, then God will use it to judge them. Because they will have been given this living example of Christianity in front of their eyes. This whole idea of heaping coals of fire upon their head is not ours to dish out. It is not ours to give. It is something that God will do ultimately in the judgment. And the reference I gave you out of Psalm 140 basically proves that the whole coals of fire thing is association with eternal judgment. The idea is your life so reflects Christ that people who reject his revelation through you are more responsible at the judgment. Now, if the idea of heaping coals of fire on people, you know, it makes you happy, you know, live, live it up. I don't care. But that's not the intention. The idea is that you should do what's right. The idea is you live your life with a higher purpose. You don't allow yourself to be overcome with evil, but you overcome evil with good. And you know what, if you'll do that, you just might be surprised at the results. You just might be surprised. Okay, so if you review all these things, if you go back and you look at all these things we've just looked at where you're just going to love without hypocrisy and kindly affection and prefer one another and you're not lazy and you're excited and you rejoice in hope and you endure the difficulty and you're praying all the time and you're giving and distributing and you're blessing people and you're rejoicing with people and you have the same mind and you're not taking revenge. And man, let, let, me, just tell you what, let me just tell you what you can't do. You can't do all of that on your own. Not for very long. You can do it for a little while, but you'll burn out. You need 
the power of Christ. And with the power of Christ, you can. You can do every bit of it. You can absolutely do every bit of it. If you will follow the prescription, Romans 12, you present your body a living sacrifice. You allow the Holy Spirit to use you and your gifts and abilities. And you will find your life looking a whole lot like verses 9 to 21. Again, probably not a lot of new revelation today, but a reminder. And hopefully God has used his word to stir you up so that you will actually do, either continue to do or restart doing what you have already known to do, but you've let it slide. Look, we covered a lot of material today, but there's a lot of people here. And all of you represent different situations of conflict that are going on in your life and your world. Would you, would you please with me, I'm going to pray in a second, would you just honestly ask God to work in your heart and to help you just, I mean, just surrender to him whatever that thing is that he put his finger on in your heart. Will you do that with me? Let's pray.